The Postal Service is not quite in the same dire shape now as it was at the height of the pandemic, but it's still not out of its long-term financial challenges. USPS is more than two years into a 10-year reform plan that involves a major redo of its network. The man with that plan, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, says a bright future does lay ahead for USPS if Congress and the postal regulator can butt out. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman recently sat down with DeJoy, and he joins us with the highlights. And Jory, this was a long time working to get this guy to sit down and talk with you. What is the Postal Service's current financial situation? They're still losing, right? They are, but they are in a different situation, like you said, in the lead time from the height of the pandemic when Postmaster General Louis DeJoy first took office. The Postal Service was months away from running out of cash. It was a dire situation. Congress intervened, gave them $10 billion to stay afloat. And the rest of that is up to them as far as those self-help initiatives to turn things around. Where we're looking at now, the Postal Service has between 18 and $19 billion cash on hand. That's going to get spent down pretty quickly, though, with the capital investments the Postal Service is looking to make. They're looking to make billions of dollars in investments in its network and in a next generation fleet of vehicles. And, you know, so far things are a little rocky for this year, driven in large part by inflation. The Postal Service, given the most recent numbers that we have on hand, they're looking at a $4.7 billion net loss for the fiscal year so far. That's more than double the projection they had for this year. This was supposed to be a break-even year for the Postal Service under its 10-year plan, and that just hasn't materialized just yet. All right. And what exactly are those changes they're making to the network? A really big change to the network and one of the drivers of improved revenue and cutting costs, according to this plan, is standing up a bunch of sorting and delivering centers across the country. This is a consolidation of some functions across the network to be this one-stop shop where USPS processing and delivery operations are all under one roof here. And this is something that has gotten the notice of the Postal Regulatory Commission. They have opened a public inquiry into this. They've asked the Postal Service to shed more light on what this is going to look like. This is something that DeJoy and USPS management has pushed back strongly against. For DeJoy, this is a pretty, considering that from his perspective, the commission uh, was very late in giving the USPS pricing flexibility. Rates did go up earlier this month on July 9th, and USPS is going to continue using that higher authority. But from DeJoy's perspective, this is a a needless intervention by the commission to oversee this network change. And what about the USPS workforce while they're doing this network overhaul? That involves them too, correct? Yeah. And what DeJoy says is that given his plans to grow the business of USPS and make them something that is going to be a going concern for years to come, they're going to need to aggressively hire just to keep the current headcount in place. Just to give you an estimate here, the Postal Service employs north of 600,000 employees, but they lose about 40,000 employees every year due to attrition. And so here's the joy on the future of the USPS workforce. So I think over the next 10 years, you know, we're going to be hiring, have to hire like 300,000 people, right, to, to keep the flow going. And in that, we will shape it. We will shape the workforce, right? We watch where we, uh, where, where we add pre-careers, where we convert full-time, right, as we start moving the plants and, and all this. So I, I really don't think, I mean, we're going to have to ask people to move around, move from this plant to that plant, move from this delivery unit to that delivery unit. We're going to build up. All right. And DeJoy recognizes, though, that uh, this 
turnover is a fact of life there. He does, and he says even though there are efforts underway to reduce that rate of turnover uh, and convert pre-career people to full career status, he says even with those best efforts, there's always going to be a reasonably high rate of turnover. Even if we get our pre-career hiring methodology good, we'll still have a 20% turnover at its best case because it's just hard work. You don't get to go to boot camp to figure out if you want to come here first, right? Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, and you talked at length with him, Jory, about the future of the USPS business, the mix of what they'll be delivering and so forth, and what did he tell you there? Well, one big part of growing USPS is going after package business, competing with folks like UPS, FedEx, and DHL, capturing more of that market share with the packages. That was something that was huge under the COVID-19 pandemic. And something else that was huge under the pandemic was USPS partnering with the Biden administration to mail millions of COVID tests to households all across the country. These are Current numbers as of June, but 755 million tests went out to two-thirds of American households. DeJoy says this was showcasing what USPS can do, and he says there are more plans for him working with other agencies for their mission and being their preferred delivery provider of choice. And there's more things for us to do in that area. I I, want to get my team. I mean, I go personally, go visit some of these agencies that have things scattered throughout the nation. There's, who's going to be more responsive than us in terms of who's going to have more positions than, you know, than us? We have places to put things. We just never thought that way before, right? And I didn't want to put the cart before the horse. I had to get our structure running around. And now that it's on its way and i got people that can lead that. And what about the long-term viability here? Because they still lose money every year and they've got to buy these trucks and costs to that were saddled on them because some of them, too many of them, well, a lot of them have to be electric which is more expensive and there's no infrastructure, so it's costly. What about the long term here, Jory? Right. It's a lot of moving pieces, like you pointed out, Tom. One sign of whether things are headed in the right direction or not, keep an eye out for fiscal year 2024. That is going to be the year that USPS is supposed to break even financially, where its revenue and its costs match up. And so they're going to be able to turn things around, not be in the red for so uh, severe a loss. And so What DeJoy said is that at this point, it's really too hard to say whether they will meet that break-even goal next year, just given everything we've seen. But he said, you know, even if the 10-year plan works out as, you know, according to plan, uh, he's looking longer term. He's looking decades out to make sure that USPS is able to weather uh, additional changes and stay flexible to things that aren't readily apparent just yet. Wow. Interesting thought. Yeah. Although I got to take a little issue when he says, well, we're an independent organization. Well, they wouldn't have a postal board of governors and a Congress if they were truly independent. But nevertheless, they do operate kind of in a profit and loss situation with the constitutional mandate to deliver mail everywhere. That's a tough paradox. It is. And as you point out, I did ask DeJoy how long he wants the job for. You know, that he did point out that is something that is up to the board to decide. They make those hiring and firing decisions of postmasters general. But if it's up to him, he says he's not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, because prior postmasters have come from the postal ranks of career in a couple of cases, and they're good, dedicated people, but they're not really radical thinkers about the systemic and long-term problems of the Postal Service. DeJoy likes to break things and rearrange them, doesn't he? That is very much his way of doing things. And how is he personally? He seems like a guy that's uh, really down-to-earth, a straight talker. 
cordial to you? He certainly relishes the work. That's something that he told me himself uh, to give you a picture of things, Tom. I sat down with him last week. I got to the Postal Service headquarters at six o'clock. We agreed to do an hour and a half interview. And when I left headquarters around eight o'clock, he was getting ready for another meeting. So he keeps some pretty long hours, but he says that's what it takes to turn this place around. 6 a.m. or 6 p.m.? 6 p.m. Wow. (laughs) No cocktails, though, huh? No, no. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out Jory's postal coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. uh, And that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, 
And please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, 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 it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative, it's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's It's always... Straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes, and it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back 
and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.